Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. I have to tell you, we've all been looking forward to this show for a while. It doesn't feel like the most level playing field, uh, the competition to get into a top university. But this educational consultancy says it can increase your chances by four and a half times. How does it make good on that promise? We're going to find out with a 28-year-old entrepreneur, the co-founder of Crimson Education, who's been on this show many, many times. But this time, I said, can we, can we get into your brain? Can we get into your subconscious, maybe? And he said, yes. So we'll see what happens. Welcome, Jamie Beaton. Super excited to be here. Oh, it's so great to see you again. Your own story, incredibly compelling. We must, must start there for listeners who are new to hearing you for the first time. You applied to 25 of the top universities in the world, got accepted to all of them. You have six degrees. Actually, on, I've, I've got eight and on number nine right now. And working on number nine now at Princeton, were a Rhodes Scholar. Um, have a doctorate in philosophy from Oxford. Um, so I talked to a young person recently who was admitted to Yale, and I asked her, what do you think is the secret to why you've been able to make that happen for yourself? And I'll tell you what she said in a while, but I'm more interested in hearing um, how you cracked the code. What's been key for you in terms of being able to get into these incredible schools? So at the very beginning, back in high school in New Zealand, what I really did, first of all, on the academic side, I wanted to really stretch myself. So I took 10 A-levels. Most kids take three or four. And that was a good way to differentiate from other classmates. I also launched a lot of different social initiatives. So in my high school, um, New Zealand's got a pretty tough culture in terms of drinking uh, in schools. And we had a number of kids actually pass away from drugs and alcohol in my high school. So I created this initiative um, to uh, combat this because I felt like a lot of the teachers were ignoring this problem. And so we were able to get a lot of our young leaders involved in this initiative, which called Don't Stand By, Stand Up. I wrote for the national newspaper and tried to raise a lot of awareness for this. That was one. I also created like a student newspaper, a model UN club, Amnesty International club, and did various things like model UN and debating. Mm -hmm. And then finally, put a lot of time into application essays. I think my favorite essay was I worked for a chicken burger shop called Aportos, and I wrote about that for my Harvard application. So that was some of the different pieces that went into my application, which ultimately helped me get into these top schools. So most people are just swatting away and trying to get the best possible grades, but you're also thinking about creating these other entities almost that can express what you want to see in terms of change in the world. How are you managing your time at this stage? Back in high school? Yeah. So the first thing was I was ruthlessly focused on academic success in that uh, if I had a test coming up, if I had an exam coming up, um, I would really cut away everything else so I could get those top grades. Because for me, in my high school, to actually get into a school like Harvard, you basically had to be the, the ducks or the valedictorian. So I had very low margin for error. So every test, every term order I took really seriously for four years going through those years of high school. And then what I would do is I'd prioritize extracurriculars that I really loved from debating, from Otto UN. And I would look at extracurriculars both through uh, what could I compete in and do well in and win awards in, what did I enjoy, and what made sense overall for my candidacy. So that were some of the priorities that I looked at. I would recharge with a bit of tennis and paintball, um, poke with my friends. But um, for the most part, I was grinding the academics pretty hard, especially in that last 12-month sprint. I like to joke that my last year in high school was actually a lot more stressful than studying at Harvard or Stanford or Oxford, working on Wall Street, building Crimson. That was the most intense 12 months of my life today. So I'll tell you the answer from the um, young person who's secured a spot at Yale. 
Okay. Uh, and this person said the, the secret, I think, was knowing how to sell yourself really well and writing a bunch of pretentious essays. <laughs> 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 but I think uh, selling yourself really well uh, sort of ties in with what you've been talking about as well. And knowing how you're going to come across in those interviews or even in those essays, having a great deal of self-awareness, right? Totally. That self-awareness is really essential because you're really thinking about how do the universities perceive my interests, my background, my school, my achievements, and what am I going to say that will catch them off guard and surprise them? For me, probably it was my cheeky chicken burger shop essay, um, or actually quite a heartfelt family essay about a family challenge that I went through, and the combination of that, uh, you know, deep, probably darker side of, of personal growth I had to go through, as well as that more hilarious, you know, funny, rambunctious, you know, application essay about working in a burger shop. So I think you're right that self-awareness is big. And a lot of students who are focused on academics don't necessarily have so much of that going through high school. So we spent a lot of time at Crimson in that last 12-month period helping them think about what are those unique angles that can really be, you know, entertaining. Um, I just had a girl who recently got into Brown University in, mm-hmm. in, in Korea. And this student, um, she had an interesting medical condition where she would actually fall asleep sleep uh, quite randomly. So she was in the middle of this uh, bookshop in the middle of Seoul. It was about 2 p.m. and she'd fallen asleep and Mm -hmm. she woke up in the middle of this bookshop and there was security guards, uh, you know, patrons of the bookshop wondering what happened to her. And her essay was all about these hilarious situations she found herself in just because she would fall asleep. And she initially was a bit nervous about this medical condition, um, but to her it became the superpower, this funny story, the strength, and it made for a really entertaining application essay. Fantastic. Let's talk about the business, Crimson. Is it a unicorn? Yes, so our last capital raise, uh, we raised at a, at a billion-dollar valuation. Congratulations. It started in 2013. Now we're unicorn. What do you think of um, listing? Will you ever do that? Yeah, I think listing's a great pathway. I've always focused on building an incredible organization that's enduring, focused on you know student outcomes and uh, solving a problem that actually kids really need around the world. I think if you're doing that and you keep doing that, the culture's super strong and student outcomes, then you've got all these pathways open. We could stay private, we could list the business, um, certainly on different stock markets like the ASX or list in the US, which would be the main goal. But for now, we're really happy to keep growing uh, as a private business. Talk to us about the strategy of growing Crimson and the acquisition you've made over the years. Are you still looking at companies that either are competitors or whose objectives really align with yours? Yeah, great question. So uh, we've made about 15 acquisitions at Crimson over the last 10 years. Um, a lot of small tuck-in ones, but also some pretty transformative ones too. Um, some of the more exciting ones, I would say, have brought us into whole new arenas. So, uh, for example, we have this amazing platform called Revision Village, which helps international baccalaureate students all around the world preparing for their exams. It's the most popular study resource globally. So that took us into the space of online resources. Um, For a couple of hundred dollars, students can access the best set of IB study material. And I love that because it's a really good investment for our students. And it also helps kids get better IB scores, which translates ultimately to better university results. And Singaporeans know one or two things about IB scores. I think 55 out of 120 of the world's top scorers this year were from Singapore. Um, So we have a lot of passionate users of that platform here. I have also acquired uh, competing companies um, as well, but often not because they're directly competitive, but Mm. because they have some unique capability. Maybe they're in a certain market like America, or maybe they're particularly good at a certain area, like postgraduate, and that's enabled us to expand our suite of services for students. So most of our growth has come through organic growth, but we're always on the lookout for good entrepreneurs, good teams, good products to strap on to Crimson as we keep building. How did you scale this company? It started in 2013. You're mainly doing work over Skype, right, for the educational consultants 
how are you scaling the company and what sort of seed capital did you have to work with? So at the very, very, very beginning, uh, just before I headed off to the States, we were using Skype to t- teach these different students. It began with me recruiting about 50 or so of my Harvard classmates, teaching kids back in New Zealand on Skype about different parts of the application process, academics and stuff. I recruited my former teachers that taught me in high school, my math teachers, my English teachers, things like this, my old debate buddies, model UN rock stars, things like that, so we could recruit these, uh, support these students. That was how we began. And things really started to snowball when we got our first boy, Samil, into Harvard University. That was nationwide news in New Zealand. And um, we also began to attract investment capital. We raised about a million USD in our seed round. In your first year? Uh, uh, after 15 months, we raised one mil USD because we had some really strong revenue growth, great student outcomes. And we had a lot of passion for this. And I'm really grateful to the late Julian Robertson who invested in that seed round and introduced me to some amazing investors who inspired me to think about how I could take this global. In my last year at Harvard, I raised a Series B round of about 30 million USD. And in that round, um, I took Crimson then with our team from two countries to more than 20 in 24 months. And that was around the time we opened in Singapore. Um, And we took this approach of building the world's best counseling platform and then building local operations so we can really deeply understand the local school here in Singapore, international schools, local schools, all the nuances of the JC system, national service, all these quirks that make the landscape different. And our success has come from the understanding of you know, each of these different student markets plus um, this you know, unrivaled network of more than 300 counsellors, uh, former missions officers, and nearly 3,000 mentors and tutors. And that amazing you know, arsenal of resources lets us really bring a super personalized experience to each student. Um, as we've grown, we've done uh, more and more in-person and offline work with our students. Um, but the, co- the core of Crimson is a uh, on-demand access to amazing mentors from the world's best universities, wherever you are, that's really suiting you to get into those top universities. So former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd joined your advisory uh, board for the business. What do you look for with advisors? Normally with advisors, I'm looking for someone that can bring a perspective that I don't have, someone that can help us think about a new reality for Crimson. It could be a new business unit. In the case of Kevin Rudd or also New Zealand's former Prime Minister John Key, who's also there as well, both of these Prime Ministers really deeply care about education and they recognise some of the challenges of education in New Zealand and Australia. Um, Their insights helped me to launch Crimson Global Academy, which is our accredited online high school. Recently was ranked uh, the third best online high school in America, top 25 best private school in the US. And we have nearly 1,400 kids now learning in our school with some top A-level results. Um, And that online high school uh, enables kids who don't have a top physical school near them Mm. to access a full high school education. So that really was ideated and developed with inputs from those advisors. But from uh, from finance to education, we've got a lovely fellow called Tom Hirohoshi, who's the head of the Stanford Online High School. He advises me on um, online schooling as well. Um, We recruit this broad base of advisors that have helped us. And as we started this when we were 18, we needed the help. (laughs) <laughs> and you got the help. <laughs> Talk to me about some of these success stories that stand out for you. Yeah, sure. So I think um, one example that really I think is pretty awesome is a young boy, Samil, who initially was thinking about studying abroad but had no idea how to do it. Um, he hadn't learned computer science in school. We helped train him in AP computer science. We helped him to do six A-levels. He then applied. He got into five Ivy League schools as well as Stanford. Um, now, that was an awesome spot to be in, and we helped him choose ultimately to go to Harvard. 
at Harvard, he actually did applied math and computer science. Um, and we were really excited by that because we taught him computer science back in high school. From there, he went to work for Bridgewater, the world's biggest hedge fund. And then following graduation, he raised about $4 million US dollars from some top Silicon Valley investors, went through the Y Combinator program, which created startups like Airbnb, DoorDash, and Brex. And now he's running this amazing AI company. One of our other Crimson alums, Brendan, recently sold his company to Amazon Web Services. At the age of 26, we helped him to go uh, into Harvard as, a, as an undergrad. So some of these stories are pretty mind-blowing. And 10 years into Crimson, we've helped nearly 800 kids get into the Ivy League. And about 5% of incoming international students are trained by us. Um, so it's been wonderful to see all these crazy student journeys from Singapore, from Korea, from Australia, to these meccas of global university education. You know, from the outside looking in, and those are amazing stories, first off. And I'd love to have some of them come on the show. <laughs> You're and welcome. Talk to yeah, us. Folks, yeah. they're, they're amazing kids. <laughs> really incredible. Do you think it is possible to really level the playing field when it comes to education at these top universities? Many people feel from the outside looking in that unless you have the networks who show you the ropes, unless you have the um, funds to pay for the extra tutoring that it's going to need, that you're going to need uh, to do well at these exams, you can't make it there unless you're the lucky few who qualifies for a scholarship. So, what do you package this? cost? Do they come at a premium price? Is price a significant hurdle? So the first thing is Crimson was really built because when I went to these schools, I had no network in America. I didn't know anybody. I needed financial aid myself to get to the States to afford Harvard in that first year. And Crimson's really built so that wherever you are in the world, mm. if your family here in Singapore has never studied abroad before in the US, uh, or even if it has, but it doesn't know how to navigate the complexities today, you've got this amazing team of advisors. Our typical student here is about four or five different folks on the team. The program's typically about ten to 30000 Singaporean dollars per year, but we've really invested in huge scholarship programs. So in our industry, we've got the biggest scholarship for more than 100 kids a year to use our scholarships pro bono. Um, I was just actually chatting with uh, some New Zealand media a couple of hours ago about our student Ty Renner, mm. who's a young Maori student who just got into Columbia University, uh, maybe the first young Maori student ever to go to Columbia as an undergrad from New Zealand. So we have a lot of these scholarships so that if, you've, if you're a talented kid and you can't afford our fees, um, but you need our support, you know we're here to help. And we also have millions of students checking out our online resources on YouTube and other platforms all around the world. Um, and I actually walk around campuses like Princeton where I'm studying right now and kids come up to me and say, hey, I'm really grateful for uh, those online resources on Admit Yogi or on Crimson's blog because they actually helped me with the admissions process. So we try and have, of course, amazing impact on our students, mm. um, but uh, hopefully that impact inspires kids all around the world as well. Fantastic to hear about your free resources uh, on YouTube as well. When we think about top students preparing for these exams, uh, you mentioned it's about 10000 to 30000 for a year, but you don't just work a year before you're going to apply, right? You work with these students years before. Is that right? That's right. So the application process to a school like Harvard, the journey begins when you're about 14 and in, in that your academics, extracurriculars, leadership, essays, interviews, it's all part of the process. Your academics from the age of 14 are being assessed. So how well you do in those internal grades really important. I was at one of my students' places yesterday, um, a lovely SAS student uh, who's grade nine, and the student is thinking about their grades really intensely with you know, every subject because that's all going to be part of the process. So definitely the students are often beginning around then. We do have plenty of kids who join us in those final two years or even the last year. Um, students of ours like Duncan uh, Parsons ended up getting into Harvard, Stanford and Duke, um, joining us quite late. But the best results come when you join early because you have more time with us to help you launch those capstone projects, choose what extracurriculars you want to do, get into summer programs uh, abroad, um, get those top academic grades, take more subjects, nail the application essays, 
all that complexity we can optimize even better if we begin nice and early with the student. Talk to us about sort of the inner habits. I always think it's interesting when entrepreneurs come and they open up a little bit and we find out, you know, what is it about the way they view the world that maybe we can model uh, to move to a different level of achievement as well. Are you very hard on yourself? I am. I am hard on myself. Um, And, you know, I always feel like there's um, gaps we need to work on and solve. I'm always focused on uh, what we need to improve to get better. Um, And I do try and take time out to celebrate the wins, um, especially if, you know, if we've got nearly uh, 800 staff now at Crimson around the world. And for them and our community, it's really important we're celebrating the wins. But for me, I'm always focused on how we can make ourselves better and improve. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's very necessary for entrepreneurs. I think a lot of great entrepreneurs um, that I look up to, they have a mix of optimism and paranoia. And I think that's an important uh, mix. <laughs> optimism and paranoia. Okay. And when it comes to time management, what is your approach to the day? So the first thing is thinking about what are the most critical things you've got to focus on that actually moves the dial. For me, how I allocate my time is, first of all, I love to work with students. So every year I work with 10 or 15 students myself, um, and that's really important to me. It gives me a lot of energy and fulfillment. Beyond that, I'm thinking about who are the key leaders in the organization I need to spend time with to orientate what they're doing. Many of the different CEOs of the companies we've both uh, launched and acquired report up to me, and I'm thinking about how I can best help them, coach them, and my style adapts based on what they need. I also have got to think about, um, you know, uh, long-term strategy and getting myself out of the day-to-day. That's thinking about how the market's evolving, trends in education, speaking to investors, speaking to other folks in other industries, and seeing what can happen. Um, And then, of course, a bit of time to recharge and get some new ideas, which is where I use my studying from, doing different academic programs to get new perspectives, meet new folks as well. Um, I try to get some good sleep, not always, but um, usually I try to get a crisp six hours um, and get back in the race the next day. Where do you see online education moving towards in terms of trends? You started in 2013, Skype was big then. Then, of course, now everybody has, you know, a, um, a course that you can buy into and sell. Everybody's selling the expertise to some degree. Where do you see online education evolving towards and how? So I've never seen Crimson being defined by the fact that it's an online learning company because mm-hmm. basically what we try and do is whatever it takes to build the most effective education system around our student, we'll do that. And the reality is a lot of the world's best mentors are at MIT. They are at Yale. They are in the middle of Manhattan. And so for a student here in Singapore, you know, we need to combine them. Um, so there's local experts here in Singapore, our strategist based here, as well as folks that used to work in the missions office at a place like Yale to work with a kid online. Mm-hmm. So we use online not because necessarily online is so magical, but because it is the way that we can bring the top mentors globally to each of our students. So I've always had this thing where online is the mechanism by which we achieve outcomes. It's not the you know reason why we're structured in a certain mm-hmm. way. I think actually a lot of online courses aren't very engaging if they're purely video-only, lecture-based. What makes Crimson special is the one-on-one magic between the mentor and the student, that personal connection that helps to really get those personalized results. Um, I think that there's some amazing content online. Um, A lot of our students take Coursera classes. One of my students, Andrew, who's now a junior at Harvard, he took a range of Coursera classes in different areas, um, from engineering to music. And it can be a great way for you to try new areas if you're very self-motivated. But I think if you're learning hard material, uh, a purely online experience can be a bit isolating. Mm -hmm. So we love the magic of, you know, one-on-one interactions. Why do you keep studying nine degrees, ten, you're on to your ninth or tenth, um, when you've created a massively successful company already? So for me, it's all about continuous personal upskilling. We've got a value at Crimson called Level Up, 
and I really try and live this value for our team, whether it be leveling up our students and helping them improve their academics and their leadership, our staff, helping them get promoted to the next level. Many of my leaders at Crimson have been with us for seven years, and they've continually been promoted and grown with the organization um, with some good external hires too. On a personal level, you know, I began this, I had no knowledge of business, so I wanted to do an MBA to help me level up and fulfill that full business skill set. Um, I didn't know what it was like to actually understand education research deeply, so I wanted to do a PhD studying what drove student outcomes and student satisfaction in online learning environments. Mm. Um, I was exposed to law a lot through Crimson, acquiring companies, uh, IP, employment law and stuff, so I wanted to pursue a law degree at Yale Law to help you know, master some of those areas and become stronger. Um, but more recently, you know, I feel like continuing to keep your mind fresh and agile. Um, I'm at a Princeton program now studying quantitative finance. That really helps me to stay nimble, sharp, make sure that, you know, I'm not losing any key skills. And I'm also staying relevant for my students, um, both being able to explore to them what these universities are like, but also be able to explain to these kids going through stressful exams the tactics that I'm using right now myself to help get through my own examinations. If you could crystallize the main sort of tactics, strategies, means of approaching studying in order to do well for an academic examination. You know, in, in some parts of the world, the focus is on memorization, right? Just getting the base facts. In other parts of the world, it is a, there is a lot of social pressure that keeps somebody still on track. And a lot of students can feel really miserable uh, because of that pressure on them and because they may not have the foundation because you can only learn if, if you can hook onto something that you've learned before to some extent, right? And not everybody has that same base foundation. So what do you say to that student out there who is in a highly pressurized situation, feeling quite miserable, but, you know, feeling this inkling that they want to still aim for their dreams of getting into an Ivy League university. So for many of our students here doing, for example, the Singaporean A-levels or the IB or the advanced placement, mm. the good thing about these assessments is there are so many practice exams, practice questions, um, platforms like Revision Village on the IB side, um, study resources where you can see literally the practice exams for the last 20, 30 years for some of these A-level subjects. So what this means is that you can actually do so many practice questions mm. that when you go into an exam, you've almost seen 80, 90% of it before. And what you're really fighting for are those new questions that are hard and obscure that require you to apply new techniques or new methodologies. But for the most part, it's about grinding through all those practice questions and um, you know not, not leaving any stone unturned. Mm. As you get through to more advanced exams, for example, in graduate school, where studying practice exams doesn't really take you that far because there aren't that many to study, right. the strategies must change. But for a high schooler, the you know I used to literally have a sheet of paper that had every single practice exam and I would tick off as I finished them, what grade I was getting and just make sure I got through every single one because it is about preparation and just getting the reps in. So I often say that the kids who do the best in high school aren't necessarily ones with the highest IQ. They have the strongest work ethic and the desire to get through it. And I think that's actually quite inspiring for a young kid to hear because it means that they control their destiny. You know, if they want to do 15 years of practice exams for A-level further maths, they're going to do well in their exam. And if you just try and wing it, no matter how sharp you are, it might be difficult. So I always found that, you know, no matter how much I went through high school, um, if you are going to those practice exams, those practice questions, you're taking questions you're stuck on to your tutor and getting them solved quickly, and you're actually doing that more than your classmates, you know, surprise, surprise, you're going to do well in that exam. How do you deal with the emotional side of things of, you know, sometimes grinding away and still not making the grade? It seems to me that you have a, you know, very even keel when it comes to managing your emotions. You keep yourself on an even keel. Yeah, I think 
as an entrepreneur and just in general, as, uh, to be honest, yeah, even in high school, I would say it was you know, more intense in some parts of my entrepreneurial journey. You've got to think about, you know, what do you do to stay balanced? And for me, you know, that often involves a bit of fitness and sports. Mm. It involves family, friends, those important relationships during those really stressful times that you yep. can call and just be very vulnerable with. It also involves doing things that actually gives you a lot of joy. For me, studying things like economics and finance and law, I actually love the material. It's super fun. It's interesting. So that even when I'm banging my head against the wall, hypothetically, at least I'm doing something that I really enjoy. So I think it's a combination of um, making sure that there's some intrinsic love for the subjects and having those support systems around you. When things start to get a bit ugly, yeah. it's when you're often not sleeping, you know, you're not doing any fitness, um, you're kind of grinding yourself down, um, you're not seeing people because you're quite isolated and stressed, um, and you're a bit of a, almost like a manic state. And that's when you start to, you know, get a bit untethered. So I think you've got to make sure that even when you're getting through some hard content, you have those pillars in place. Um, and sometimes, you know, a rejuvenating break, you know, a good run or something can, you know, really reset your mind. And you said academics was my athletics, so you actually enjoyed the the, the exam taking as well, right? I did, I did. <laughs> you know, in New Zealand, our religion is, is the All Blacks, it's rugby. Um, but for me, you know, I always saw the classroom as my competitive environment. And for me, I saw if I can perform well in these exams in this classroom, if I can beat my fellow classmates, then, you know, this would be a pathway to these great universities and the future that I saw for myself. So I viewed each exam with a mixture of love of learning, a competitive streak, you know, a bit of nervousness to do well, and, you know, uh, you know, love of the process. And I think that mentality um, kept me going through a whole range of, you know, A-levels and stuff and um, served me well when I got to the States, to Harvard and beyond. Fantastic. Before we let you go, tell us what's next for Crimson Education. Well, uh, right now we've been spending actually a lot of time in the U.S. We're now the largest college missions firm in America. Um, about 25% of Crimson is in the U.S. So I've been putting a lot of time into uh, working with kids all across the states from New York to California. Uh, one of our boys from the most competitive school, um, uh, one of the top boarding schools just got into Yale for classics. Another student over in California, one of my personal students just got into Stanford um, for environmental science. Uh, so we really, really enjoy that. And um, getting to know the local school system in America has been a great learning experience for me. We also acquired a company in the U.S. in the college admission space too recently. So that's been a bit of my focus and having been lived, living in America for the last couple of years. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on all the success and thank you for coming by. Thanks so much. Wonderful to see you. Let's Jamie, again likewise. <laughs> Absolutely. Jamie Beaton there from Crimson Education co-founder. I am Michelle Martin. Thank you for joining me here on Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.